And uh, I wanted to begin today a little bit different. I know you just closed your eyes to pray, um, but I want you to close your eyes again, and we're going to imagine something. We're going to tap into our imagination. I want you to imagine that you came here to the Performing Arts Center, not on a Sunday, but on a Friday night, and you didn't come to a free event. You came to something you had to buy a ticket for. And as you were driving in off of Sheldon, the traffic was just terrible, and you're like, what's going on tonight? And you, you're driving in, and you're fighting for a parking spot, and then it was like light came down from heaven, and ah, and there's a parking spot right for you, and you park your car, and you walk in, and there's a, there's a buzz in the room. It's, it's a, a room of anticipation. People are excited to see what, what's going to happen, and, and then all of a sudden the lights go down, and this, this music starts, and it's got this thumping bass that's just hitting you in the chest, and a man comes out from the side, and he's wearing a tuxedo, and he's carrying on his hand a silver platter, you know, the kind you've seen in movies and where there's a giant feast about to be served. And as he carries on a stage, people begin to shout and scream and they're excited because they want to see what's under that platter. And as the music builds, people are screaming and shouting and whistling. And you're like, what kind of event have I gone to? And all of a sudden he gets ready and he pulls off the cover slowly. And as people see what's on the plate, they just scream and shout and they're so excited because it's bacon. (laughs) Open your eyes. Now you say, Scott, what on earth are you talking about? Well, if you went somewhere where people paid money to see someone suggestively or sensually pull off a cover and reveal bacon, you would say, there's a problem. Those people are starving. And in our culture, as obsessed as we are with bacon, we do the exact same thing with sex. Sex has never been more available. It's never been more accessible. And yet, I believe that we are still starving. This morning, I want to continue our series entitled Freedom, Breaking Free from Our Idols. And as we get ready for Easter, which is almost a month away, We're going to be looking at the obstacles that get in the way of us experiencing the freedom that is made possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And last week we looked at how any gift from God can be taken by us and turned into a God. And each week in this series we're looking at specific idols, things that get in the way. And for those of you who weren't here or if, like me, you had a full week and you lost a little bit of clarity when we discussed last Sunday, I want to remind you of our definition of an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And I know that some of you are wrestling with this idea of an idol or you're wrestling with this idea that you worship something in your life. You go, maybe I just have my priorities out of whack. Maybe I just care about that thing too much. You know, I don't don't have an idol. I just, you know, I got to get this thing taken care of because it's got an inappropriate role in my life. This definition, according to Tim Keller, is that anything that is more important to you than God is an idol. And anything you seek to give you what only God can give is an idol. Last week we said anything that when you lose it or you think about losing it, you're overwhelmed with despair about. You go, I can't go on without. Those things are idols. And today, as Clovis said, we're going to talk about two 
common idols in our world, the idols of love and sex. And here's the big idea. Love and sex make incredible gifts, but terrible gods. Love and sex make incredible gifts, but terrible gods. This morning, you walked in, you got a bulletin, and in that bulletin is a handout, and I'd encourage you to pull that out and take notes this morning, because we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 29 this morning. Uh, Genesis, if you don't know, is the first book in the Bible, and it's one of my favorite books because it reminds me of why I love the Bible. Unlike other holy books, the people that, that the Bible holds up as heroes, we get the full picture on. We don't get their edited history, we get the full picture. And so if you've ever seen the TV show Modern Family, it has nothing on the book of Genesis. These are the most dysfunctional families in all of human history. One family, the first family, one son kills the other son. Down the road in another family, two daughters get their dad drunk and then sleep with their dad. Another family, the, the man tells his neighbors that his wife is his sister, and we're not even in chapter 20 yet. It's just these most dysfunctional families, and it's an encourager because some of us have those kind of families too that are messed up, and we go, man, is there any place for me? Yep, you fit right into the book of Genesis. And today, we're going to read about a man named Jacob. We learned about Jacob a little bit in our previous series on forgiveness called Toxic, about how Jacob uh, had a, a relationship breakdown and he needed to experience forgiveness. But Jacob's story begins with this tension and this battle with his brother Esau. His name, Jacob, literally means heel grabber because he and his twin brother Esau were born with Esau coming out first and Jacob holding on to Esau's heel. And that tension continued throughout their life. He stole his brother's birthright and got the inheritance his brother was born into. He and his mom, because they had one of those families where parents played favorites and they pitted their kids against one another. I said it was dysfunctional. And he tricked his dad into giving him Esau's blessing. And by this point, Esau says, I'm done with it. I'm going to kill you. And it isn't like a five-year-old saying to a three-year-old, I'm going to kill you. He literally could have done it. And so Jacob goes running away. He goes fleeing for his life with only the clothes on his back. And he stumbles into the land that's owned by his mother's brother, his uncle Laban, which is where we pick up this story in Genesis 29. And this morning, what I want to do in the first part of our time together is I want to share with you what we can learn from Jacob about our idols. And the first part we'll learn comes from verses 15 through 19. The passage reads, Then Laban, that's Jacob's uncle, said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah's eyes were weak, which means that she wasn't particularly attractive. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. The first lesson we learn from Jacob is that idolatry costs us more than we imagined paying. Idolatry costs us more than we imagined paying. You know, the, the, world, the world of the Bible is a very different world than ours in many ways, but one of them relates to marriage. In, in our world, you marry for love. 
And you have sites like eHarmony and Match and Tinder that, that can facilitate some part of that journey. And we have these romantic stories. We have this moment of a man getting down on one knee and proposing. But this is not the world of the Bible. People didn't marry in the Bible for love. They married for status. And rarely did a man and a woman choose one another. No, their families chose each other. And typically, the family of the bride would pay the family of the groom what's called a dowry associated with the wedding. Well, because Jacob ran away, his family's estranged, he came only with the clothes on his back. He has nothing to give except for his time. So he says to Laban, I will give you seven years of service. The problem is, is that Laban takes advantage of his nephew because scholars tell us this is at minimum, four times the normal price for a dowry. Jacob gets cheated. And if you think you got cheated on Valentine's Day buying roses, this is way worse than that. Way, way worse than that. And it's a reminder that idolatry costs us more than we imagine paying. Because we're going to learn in a minute that Jacob doesn't just love Rachel. He worships her. He doesn't just have butterflies for her. He's obsessed with her, and he has to have her. It reminds me of my friend David and his story. David one day stumbled on something on the internet that he shouldn't have looked at, but he kept looking. And what was a chance encounter with porn became an addiction. He looked at it at his computer at home when no one was around, and he began to look at it on his phone. And it got so bad that he couldn't go throughout a work day without looking at it. So he began to look at it at work. Until the day that his boss found him looking at porn. And so he went home that day to his wife. First he had to tell her that he lost his job. Then he had to tell her why he lost his job. And you might say, how could that get so bad that you couldn't go eight hours without looking at it because idolatry costs you more than you imagine paying? And it wasn't that David looked at porn, he had to have porn. And because of that, he was addicted and enslaved to it. Not all idols are addictions, but all addictions are idols. And when we get a relationship like this to something, we experience the truth that making an idol makes us vulnerable to abuse and manipulation. See, Jacob has to have Rachel, and so because of that, he gets exposed, and Laban, who doesn't have his best interest in heart, he gets to abuse Jacob. I'm somewhat thankful that my friend David's boss was not like Laban, because David's boss could have abused David. Once he discovered him looking at porn, he could have said, okay, now you're going to do whatever I tell you to do or else I'll tell your wife. You'll do whatever I'll tell you to do or else I'll fire you from this job. He could have been abused and manipulated by his boss in the way that Laban abused and manipulated Jacob. Idols, they cost us more than we imagine paying. We learn more about Jacob in verse 20. It says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. The second lesson we learn from Jacob is that we look to idols to fill holes only God can. 
We look to our idols to fill holes that only God can. Think back to how long ago seven years was for you. It would be March of 2010. Where were you? What were you doing? For some of you, it seems like a lifetime ago. And yet to to Jacob, because he loved Rachel so much, says they flew by. See, Jacob doesn't come into this story a, a healthy man. He comes in a broken man. You see, he's, he's rejected by his father. The blessing he gets from his dad, where he says, I love you, I'm proud of you, here's your, here's your positive future, he only got that because he tricked his dad. His dad gave love and affection to Esau, but none to Jacob. Then his mom, he separated from his mom, which is probably a good thing because they had this dysfunctional mother-son thing going on, you know, where Rebecca gets back at Isaac through Jacob. He's estranged from his brother. His brother wants to kill him. And up till now, we have no sign of any connection between Jacob and God. And so he comes to Rachel rejected from his father, separated from his mother, estranged from his brother, without connection to God, with this giant hole. And he's looking for Rachel to fill that hole. He's looking for her love and their relationship to do something in him. He's hoping that romantically or sexually, she will give him what only God can give. See, it's not that sex and love are bad things. But when we look to those things for what only God can give, we make them into idols and we worship them because we do to them what we should do to God. And so if you say, man, I don't worship things, well, is there ever a time in your life where you looked to that thing to make you feel whole, to make you feel okay, to to numb out that pain that you felt? If so, then that thing is an idol. And many of us, when it comes to love, we experience this uh, psychological phenomenon that's known as limerence. Limerence is the, the psychological term for what it means to be lovesick. When you watch someone fall madly or passionately in love, you watch them become powerfully attracted to another person. Sometimes you say to somebody, man, they are so in love it's like they can't think of anything else. Well, that's, that's limerence. It's the phenomenon where you put another person on a pedestal and you, you agonize over whether they feel the same way for you. You send them a note. Do you like me? Check a box. Yes, no, maybe. You have heart palpitations when you're around them. Your tongue swells up. You lose your appetite. We say about certain people like this that they're no longer thinking like if you've got a teenager or a friend who's in that, that phase of teenage young adulthood and they're, they're so in love, it's like their brain is no longer working, that's actually true. Because when you're in limerence, dopamine, your pleasure chemical, washes over your brain and it leaves you with a euphoric, stimulated feeling where you have more energy and less appetite. But it's a double-edged sword because when your dopamine goes up, your serotonin goes down. And that's the chemical that helps you make wise decisions. That's why if you know somebody who's in love, they do crazy, spontaneous, stupid things they wouldn't normally do because they're in this experience. The problem with limerence is that it will burn out within 18 to 36 months. We say the honeymoon period is over. That's literally what happens. And as you return to normal, if that 
love hasn't been reciprocated and you haven't built a relationship on something greater than that feeling, there's a crash. And it's, it's bad. And that's why you've discovered when you've been in that place and that relationship comes back down or it falls apart, you're worse off than when you started. You feel less okay than before. You feel emptier than before. That's because you look to that idol for what only God can give. And we're about to watch this happen in the life of Jacob. In verse 21, it says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. The third lesson we learn is that we become slaves when we cannot live without our idols. We become slaves. If, if you're familiar with the Bible at all before this passage, what you'll find is that the statement that Jacob makes to Laban is the most graphic sexual statement one person has made to another up to this point in the Bible. He says, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. He doesn't say, hey, we had a deal. It's been seven years. It's time. Throw me the party. He doesn't say, hey, I'm so excited for our wedding day. He says, give her to me for I must have her. See, when you have that kind of feeling, you learn this truth that what you have to have has you. What you have to have, what you can't live without, that thing has you. You're the slave. That thing is the master. And Jacob has to have Rachel. He's thought about her constantly for seven years. He hasn't been able to live without her. Not a day has gone by when he hasn't dreamed about this, and this has ceased to be love. This has ceased to be a good desire, and it is now an idol. And nowhere else in our culture do I think we experience this so powerfully as a problem than in porn. That what you have to have has you. And this isn't just a problem out in culture, it's a problem in the church. And we rarely talk about it. And that's created an environment where so many people live in the bondage of secret shame. I've got some news to share with you today, and it's not good news. I'm not excited to share it, but I think you need to know the reality of our world when it comes to this. The average age a child first encounters porn is now somewhere between 9 and 11 the vast majority of those are not intentional. A child is on a device like this and they stumble on something. But by the time those children are 18, they've had two encounters with hardcore pornography. And over the last 15 years, as I got started about then working with college students, I've watched a change with men. It's not become good for men to struggle with porn, but it's become less surprising but that doesn't apply to women. For a woman to share about a struggle with porn is still seen as disgusting or dirty or shameful or untalking. You can't talk about it. And yet the data shows us that one-third of porn users are women. And so men can share without being judged or condemned or thrown out, but women can't. And that's a problem. 
there's, there's more data. It says that the more and more a person uses porn, the more extreme or violent images they will seek out. What was enough in the beginning is not enough as you go on. We've also found that the more and more a person uses porn, the less likely they are to show fidelity in a real relationship. Porn actually increases the chance that you'll cheat. It's also been shown that the more and more you use pornography, the less able you will be to connect with someone intimately in person. What what you long for in terms of connection becomes less likely, not more likely because of porn. In one of these studies, a young man sat down for three weeks. They were studying him. He was looking at porn. And after three weeks of sitting down at his computer, taking his red hat off and putting it on his computer, just the sight of the red hat would arouse him. It wasn't the images anymore. It was that the hat was attached to the experience and just seeing the hat was enough. It's crazy that what our hearts most desperately long for when we begin to engage porn becomes less likely the longer we use it. And we become further from it the deeper we go. And these stats are not from Christianity today. They're from very public companies and organizations that are aware of the public health crisis we have as it relates to porn. Porn is a $12 billion industry. More than ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox combined. More than the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and the NHL combined. And Jacob didn't have a problem with porn, but he did have a problem with an idol. And we're going to see in a minute what that led to, beginning in verse 22. It says, So Laban gathered together all of the people of that place and made a feast. In the evening, he took his daughter Leah not Rachel. And he brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Now Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, not what he expected. And Jacob said to Leah, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me, Laban? And Laban said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other Also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and he completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. See, Jacob, who's made his entire life narrative about tricking other people, he gets tricked. He's taken advantage of and abused and got his way with other people, and now things come full circle. In writing about this experience and this rude awakening that Jacob got when it came to his idol, Tim Keller said this. He said, when you put all your hope and security on going to bed with Rachel, It's always Leah in the morning. And this isn't just Jacob's experience. It's ours. When you put your hope and security on it going this way, you wake up and it's gone this way. 
He went looking to porn for connection, and it made it harder for you to connect. He went to love looking for fulfillment, and it left you more empty. This is why our fourth lesson from Jacob is that with an idol, we go to bed expecting Rachel, but we wake up with Leah. And this is why I wanted to talk about this today. Not because I wanted to have this uncomfortable conversation in public. There's lots of other things I would have enjoyed talking about more. But many of us have been deceived. We've been deceived by lust. And lust never delivers on its promises. In fact, it often delivers the opposite of what it promised. And we live in a world where each of us are constantly being bombarded with deceptive promises, taken in, abused, used, violated, and then returned empty. And I'm tired of this being a subject that people have to struggle with silently. If we just play the numbers in this room, we're not immune. There's a quote that's been said many times. I'm not sure who first said it, but the quote is, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's true when it comes to idols. Your idols take you further than you want to go. They keep you longer than you want to stay, and they cost you more than you want to pay. And so what you thought was something small and innocent and limited, like my friend David, almost cost you your life. And none of us are above this. We're all human. I'm no better than David. Neither are you. I'm no better than Jacob. Neither are you. So, with all of that being said, how do we find freedom? If you wrestle with the the idol of love or sex, how do you find freedom? Well, here's the first step. We need to begin loving people instead of worshiping them. The solution is to love people instead of worshiping them. Somebody asked me this week, said, Scott, isn't it the idol of romance or the idol of romantic love? No, I think what happens with us is you take something that's good. I mean, the number one commandment in the New Testament, Jesus says, is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the deception of idols is we take the greatest commandment and we turn it into the greatest tool of our enemy who keeps us in bondage. What, what God intended for good is used for evil. And we see this in our culture as we replace God and throw out faith as this antiquated thing we're now looking to love. One writer calls it apocalyptic romance. That we have these expectations of the person we're going to meet romantically, that they're going to give us what we once looked to God for. In one of his books, Ernest Becker said this. He coined this term, apocalyptic romance. He says, The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life, the one. All spiritual and moral needs become focused on one individual. In one word, the love object is God. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. And I know no modern example that better illustrates this than Jerry Maguire when he says, you complete me. He's not looking to her for love. 
He's looking to her to redeem him. He's looking to her to fulfill him. He's looking to her to make him feel okay and safe and secure. This is why one of my friends will call her Sarah, calls romantic comedies emotional porn. She said, Scott, it doesn't matter if it's a Meg Ryan movie or a Fifty Shades of Grey book or a, uh, you know, something that seems very innocent for a woman to engage. She says, it does for me the same thing watching porn would do for you. It promises me an experience of fulfillment apart from the context where God created me to get that fulfillment. And it creates this expectation that then can be transferred onto a real person that will crush them. Because if you read this stuff or watch this stuff and then put that on an actual person that they're going to deliver what you read about in fiction, you will destroy them. Because no person can live up to that. No real person can actually be that. Having been married for almost nine years, I can tell you, I'm married to someone who's great, but who's not perfect. And I'm not either. And yet so many times we engage these things culturally that allow us to put our spouses up or our future spouses up for tremendous suffering because we expect them to be God and to meet all of our needs, to complete us. Here's the question I want you to fill the blank in today. How would you answer this sentence? If I could just get blank, everything would be okay. What do you put in that blank? If you could just get love? If you could just get better sex? If you could just get a date? If, if that person would finally just marry you? If you could have more sex or sex with somebody different or you could watch more porn or better porn or what do you fill in that blank? I mean, Jacob put Rachel in there. If I could just get Rachel, everything would be okay. And the results for him are the same results we're going to experience. The solution is actually loving people for the imperfect, broken creations they are, not worshiping them. The second step is to ask God to meet legitimate needs in legitimate ways. Ask God to meet your legitimate needs in legitimate ways. Love and sex are not bad desires within us. This is one of the tragedies of the church, I think, in the modern era. In trying to speak against the sexual revolution, we've done terrible damage because we've said either intentionally or unintentionally that the desires God gave us are bad. Desire is not bad. Having these desires in you is not bad. I told this story in the first service. It was the first time I've ever told it in public. One of my friends grew up in a youth group that was so anti-sex that when she got married to a Christian man and they had not had sex until they got married, it took her years to not experience profound shame in their marriage because she couldn't just flip the switch and to go from bad desire to this is okay. Years. She couldn't enjoy what God created because she thought the desire was bad. No, the desire is good, but sin, according to C.S. Lewis, is seeking to meet a legitimate need illegitimately.
And this is hard. I mean, how do you, how do you filter this out? God gave me a legitimate need, but I have yet to get into the context to fulfill that need. And so we take matters into our own hands and we seek to get our legitimate needs met illegitimately. The solution is to look to God and say, God, you gave me this need. Help me. Sustain me on a daily basis until I can meet that legitimate need in a legitimate way. This will, this will push a question up for you within your heart. And the question is this, how much does Jesus mean to you? Not here on Sunday when we sing, I exalt thee. Not on Tuesday when you go to your community group to talk about this stuff. But on Wednesday night at 12.30 a.m. where you're lonely and you can easily click off Facebook onto something else, how much does Jesus mean to you? When he's like, everybody else you know is getting married and getting what you want. How much does Jesus mean to you? We say, we sing, your grace is enough. Is it? Do we look to Jesus or do we look to our idols? Do we look to them for what only he can give? Will Jesus be enough to meet your needs? This isn't a theoretical church question. This is very real where you live. The third one, and this may be one of the hardest ones, is to confess our idolatry. It's to confess our idolatry. Some of you, as you've been sitting here today, God's been moving, as Jamie said, with conviction in your heart and showing you that you have an idol in this place, like my friend David did. And you say, but Scott, I can't ever confess that. No one can know, because the fallout would be great. I've never been a part of AA because I don't struggle with alcoholism, but I've learned a lot from that program. And one of the things I've learned is that you're only as sick as your secrets. And as long as this remains a secret, as long as you're in the darkness, struggling with these idols, you will never find freedom. You'll just live in shame. You'll condemn yourself. You'll struggle to connect with a real person. But when you leave the darkness and you bring this into the light with confession, you make it possible for there to be freedom. Look, there are going to be consequences. One of the reasons I, I've put off talking on this subject in the past is because, man, the consequences are so great. But if you think that the longer you wait, the better it will get, I want to remind you that the consequences of concealment are far worse than the consequences of confession. The longer you hide this, it's only going to get worse. If you're a parent or a manager at work, you know this. If your child or your employee comes to you with something they did wrong, you treat them very differently than if you find them hiding it. And yes, the consequences are going to be great, but they only get greater the longer you hide it, the more you try to manage it, the more you try to fix it on your own. And confession doesn't take those consequences away, but it makes possible what has been my prayer for the last two weeks for you in this moment, that you would find healing. In James 5, the brother of Jesus writes, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power when it's working. 
You don't confess because you're not afraid of the consequences. No, you confess because more than you're afraid of the consequences, you're ready to be free. You're ready to be done with the darkness of sin and shame and hiding. You're done with being afraid that somebody's going to find it, that somebody's going to find you out. Here's what I would say to you. Don't wait till Easter to experience resurrection. You can begin today when you confess to God, maybe to somebody that you trust. Here's the fourth one, last one. We have to love Jesus more than our idol. We have to love Jesus more than our idol. You say, Scott, I think my idol is my spouse. Well, the solution is not loving your spouse less. Promise you, that's not going to help things. The solution is not going, okay, I need to desire sex less. No, the solution is to love Jesus more and to look to him instead of your idol. I want to tell you the rest of the story of Leah. Because when we left her, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Up till now, she's been the butt of the joke. Go to bed with Rachel, wake up with Leah. Here's the rest of her story. It says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb, not Rachel's. And so Leah conceived and bore a son and she gave him the name Reuben for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She made Jacob her idol. Jacob idolized Rachel. Now Leah idolizes Jacob. She has the first son. Well, now it says she conceived again and she bore another son. Because the Lord has heard me that I am hated. He's given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. But Jacob still couldn't fill her hole. Then it says, and she conceived a third time and bore a son. Now this time, finally, I gave my my husband three sons. Maybe he will now love me. Because I've borne him three sons and they named him Levi. And then verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, this time... I will praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. If you know your Bible history, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah. And it was from Judah that we would see a lineage go straight to Jesus. See, Leah only came to rest in her heart. She was only okay when she stopped looking to her children or her husband for what only God can give. She began to love Jesus more than her idols. She began to accept God's gifts as gifts and not God's. And that's where our hope is today too. These things, love and sex, they make incredible gifts and they're signs of God's blessing and his pleasure, and his desire to see us thrive, but they make terrible gods. And my prayer is that in this season, as we look towards Easter, it's not that we would seek to desire less. It's that we would love Jesus more. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you give us this raw, real, honest story in Scripture to know that that the experience of your people, even from hundreds and thousands of years ago, is not that different from us. To know that there's not something terribly wrong with us that makes us unworthy of your love. 
No, there is something broken within us that you gave yourself out of love to be transformed and healed. And I have to believe that in this room or, or watching online, there are some people who, who have been bound in these places, maybe for years. I have to believe that because you are real and your spirit is at work using something as feeble as my broken words, that you've been at work. And if that's you, if, if you would say, man, this is a place where I've struggled and I want to find freedom, I want to pray for you this morning, would you be so bold as to raise your hand? Say, I, I've struggled here, I am struggling here, I want to be free. Thank you. So I just want to pray over you this morning. God, I, I pray for your sons and daughters who've been bound in captivity here. I pray this morning that you would begin to break the shackles of slavery, that you would give them the courage to confess to you and someone they trust that they've been defeated in this area. I pray that they would claim the truth of your scriptures, which says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would remind their hearts that you're convicting them so that they can repent, not condemning them so that they have to hide. I pray that in this season, long before we get to April 16th, that they would begin to experience resurrection as you bring life out of a place that's only been death and pain. Fill their hearts with courage today. In your name we pray, amen. The band is going to lead us in a, a brief song. It's a few years old. It's called uh, Give Us Clean Hands. And this morning, before you leave, I pray that you would respond however God is leading you. The, the front is open. You can come down and pray by yourself or pray with one of our prayer partners. You can stay where you sit. You can stand. I just pray that you, before you leave today, you would do the next thing God is leading you to do. And I pray that resurrection would come to us as we invite God to be who he intended to be in our lives and as we lay down our idols. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.